is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Dow down big today in a brutal week that ravaged the stock market. It's now on track to close the week a thousand points below where it started. This comes after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again. We go in-depth into whether we are moving full speed toward a recession. NASA is smashing a spacecraft into an asteroid. And if it works, it could save human civilization. So it's a big deal. <laughs> if you're unhappy about the stock market, here's the good news. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a pretty We've big deal We've got a space to robot to save us all. <laughs> exactly. Hurricane Fiona is far from done wreaking havoc. It's about to smash into Canada in what could be one of the worst storms to ever hit that country. L.A. County easing the mask requirements again. You can take them off now. Public transit at the airports. How long is that going to last? Most people seem to be doing that already, even before this happened. Russia holding a vote in the occupied areas in Ukraine to let people decide if they want to join Russia, but they don't really get to decide. Someone knocks on your door and says, vote for this. Living in a nursing home and other assisted living facilities getting more expensive for seniors. And fetuses, they can't taste food, right? Uh, Maybe they can, and they might not like certain foods. That's like me. I don't like certain foods. Yeah, we'll start it early. (laughs) (laughs) We start there with the stock market and the economy. Back with us, Ron Insana, senior analyst and commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Ron, thanks for being back with us. Well, uh, not a good time, obviously, to be investing in the market or to have a 401k. Uh, Is this, though, what the Fed wants to have happen? Well, some people certainly think that the Fed wants tighter credit conditions, wants the stock market uh, probably at lower valuations and, and, and to be less stimulative to economic activity. I'm not sure if we're if this is exactly what they're hoping for. The dollar is surging against key foreign currencies. And, and, and while a recession may be a feature rather than a bug of current Fed policy to bring down inflation, I, I, I will find out in the next couple of days and weeks just how much stomach the Fed has for what might be some disruptive activity in financial markets, both here and abroad. Is there concern that the Fed is going too fast with some of this stuff? Because once you raise the rate, you usually have to wait a while and see what, what kind of changes happen. And are people freaking out that, OK, well, they're going to they're going to go way too, too far one direction. And then there we go. There's your recession. That, that, that has been my concern now, um, almost since they started, in, in part because I still believe that much of the inflation that we've experienced came as a result of the pandemic and the supply disruptions that occurred there and the war in Ukraine and the energy and food supply disruptions that occurred there. The Fed doesn't share that view necessarily, although it acknowledges as a component of inflation, they're worried that inflation is very sticky, so it may have to slow the economy noticeably to bring inflation down. So I don't think the Fed's at the worry point yet. There are some of us who who are, and with the possibility of another three-quarter point rate hike coming in November when the Fed next meets, uh, coupled with really kind of asynchronous monetary policies around the world or even fiscal policies when you look at the tax cuts that were announced in Britain today, you have a, a lot of moving parts here. Interest rates are going up around the world. The dollar's going up. Other currencies are falling. And that creates some some potential for disruptive financial markets over time. So should the average American be sort of okay and happy that maybe this is signaling that inflation is going to be tamed? Or should we be wishing that uh, that asteroid that NASA is trying to smash <laughs> actually hits us? Yeah, it just, just takes us out of our misery. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, look, I mean, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree about that particular point. Um, 
Look, I, I think, you know, having done this for almost 39 years now, we're in the midst of a cycle that's different than some previous cycles we've experienced. We may well enter a recession in the next few months where we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, the real question is, is, is the Fed raising rates so fast that something will break in the financial markets and force them to stop raising rates and turn around and maybe even cut uh, sometime next year? That, that, that's not a high probability event. It's something that I'm concerned about. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, the economy is still OK. It is clearly slowing. Housing is in recession. Uh, we're seeing inventories of unsold goods, particularly in things like apparel, pile up. And so the economy is slowing down. Um, we haven't entered the, a full blown recession that's that's throwing people out of work, you know, en masse. But we're seeing more layoffs. So, you know, right now, hopefully the Fed can thread the needle and get inflation down without creating anything more than a mild recession. Uh, but I, I think it's wait and see time. I don't think we have an answer, you know, beyond the end of this year, what the economy is going to look like, where it's just slowing down and the Fed is still likely to raise rates, given its insistence that inflation has to come all the way back down before they stop this process. Ron Insana, senior analyst, commentator on CNBC, host of the Market Scoreboard Report. Right now, though, we all know it would be bad news, and that would be an understatement, if a big asteroid... We're on a collision course for Earth, and that's why NASA is working on a way to try to solve that problem before it becomes one. A spacecraft you is don't about... think we'd handle it well? <laughs> I, no. <laughs> Something tells me we won't handle it well. Uh, a spacecraft is about to smash into an asteroid on Monday with the hopes of diverting its course just a bit. Tarek Malik is editor-in-chief of Space.com. Thanks for being with us. So uh, tell us what it is that's going to or supposed to happen on Monday. Yes. Yeah, so, so NASA is attempting what they're calling the first ever true test of planetary defense ever in the history of the space program. They're, they're intentionally slamming a spacecraft into an asteroid with the goal of changing its orbit to prove that they can, they can actually do it. Uh, and of course, you know, we've seen Armageddon uh, where we send, you know, Bruce Willis and a bunch of heroes to to drill into an asteroid and destroy it. This is uh, a bit uh, a bit uh, smaller than that, but the concept is the same. They want to be able to move an asteroid just a little bit, many years before it could become a, a real threat, uh, and, and that way, uh, that, that small movement would then cause it to miss our planet if it was on a collision course. So. If everything goes according to plan, this spacecraft, DART, is going to slam into a, a tiny asteroid called uh, Didymos, it's, or pardon me, Dimorphos. It's the moon of another asteroid, and because of that setup, they'll be able to track the change in its orbit around that parent asteroid over time to see if they can actually do this. Can we watch this thing? Does it got? Does it have a camera on it that's going to cut out once it slams into the into the so rock? That's, that's that's the best thing is that is that uh, all of us can watch this whole thing happen in real time. Now they launched this mission in November of 2021, and it has a camera on it uh, that uh, that they call Draco, uh, keeping in that that D uh, theme. And uh, it's going to be it's taking pictures now, but the, the asteroid really doesn't look like much. It's like a dot in in the the black of space. And it's going to look like that until the last few hours when it's going to slowly get bigger and bigger. And then eventually we'll see that there's a moon. Uh, and, uh, and NASA has said they should be getting a picture a second on, on the way in uh, until the spacecraft hits uh, uh, the, the, its, its target at something like 14,000 miles an hour. Uh, so, 
you know, we'll have live images until we don't. And if we don't, that's good. That means that they've hit the target um, uh, on, on, on the bullseye. So, Tara, could this, like, go wrong in a big way? Could they hit the asteroid, it fragments, and then it actually then slams into us? Oh, no, no. There's no threat at all of, of either of these asteroids, Didymos or, or Dimorphos, the target, uh, of being a threat to Earth. This is all happening about 7 million miles out in deep space, 11 uh, million kilometers. And these space, these spacecraft are just tiny uh, compared to um, uh, the big ones that we might think of as a, as a, as a threat. This type of spacecraft, um, or asteroid um, uh, Dimorphos, is around the size that could maybe cause a lot of damage to a city, but not be a planet killer. And the, the, the impact is going to maybe change the orbit around the around its parent, maybe by about 10 minutes or so. It, it orbits every 11, 11 hours, 55 minutes. They're thinking maybe they'll slow it down by about 10 minutes or so. So if there is a big, big one, the planet killer, coming our way someday, does this still work in theory? Because if you get to it fast enough, you only have to move it just a little bit off course and then it misses us? Well, th- this one is really geared towards a specific set of asteroids that are in this problem set this this the asteroid um uh dimorphos is of the size that could be a, th- a that could cause widespread devastation but not doom the planet nasa has said that something really big if it's the size of like a state of texas or something like that they might need to try something different they have a, a method that they call a gravity tractor where you park a big hefty spacecraft next to a big asteroid and the gravitational kind of impact and it seems weird that they would have that but it would change over time to to draw the asteroid a little bit off off course that's what they're looking at for things that are really really big like the chicks flube impact that doomed the dinosaurs but they really don't know where all of the asteroids that could destroy a city we saw some some devastating footage out of russia where when a, a meteoroid exploded just over a city there uh, luckily you know not uh, uh, you know, there were no fatalities for that, but there were a lot of injuries from falling glass and whatnot. Um, this type of uh, asteroid could cause a significant damage. So they want to be able to say, yes, we detect it five years in advance. We can smack it with a spacecraft uh, and <laughs> okay. that'll, that'll safeguard the city. So, so that's plan A. Uh, what happens if it turns out that plan A doesn't quite work? Do we yeah. have a plan B? So the other part of this uh, this uh, mission there is to kind of go back and see what was the effect of the impact. NASA has partnered with the European Space Agency, which is building its own mission called HERA, and that's going to send a spacecraft to this asteroid to see what the crater was like. How uh, how powerful was it? Did we did we crack it? Uh, did we split it? They don't think that's going to happen, but they want to know because then they could say yes, we, we were confident that this way of protecting the Earth would work if not maybe we follow it up with some missiles you know uh they just know nuke the thing that, right that <laughs> Derek Malaga, editor-in-chief space.com Derek, thanks coming up people in russian occupied areas of ukraine are voting on whether to join russia but there are questions over how legit it all is and fetuses apparently do not like kale making decisions early and sticking with it huh well i don't blame them i don't like kale either so <laughs> exactly. I agree with them. But they like carrots. They do? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can go with they carrots. They smiled for carrots and then... Yeah, but I, I agree so with them on kale. Yeah. All right. Right now, Hurricane Fiona ravaged Puerto Rico. We've been talking about that this week. It might do the same to Canada's Atlantic coast, barreling toward Nova Scotia right now. 
Dan Allstrand is news director for City News 95.7 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia with us. Uh, Dan, thanks for being here. So the uh, forecasters there are saying, what, you guys haven't seen something this intense for, for 50 years? Or more, to be honest. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, it's uh, a historic storm here. I uh, just heard a briefing from the Canadian Hurricane Center, which is stationed right across the harbor from Halifax here in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, they're they're suggesting that we've we've probably not seen anything quite like this before. Uh, could set some records for uh, just the, the 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 velocity of the winds as it approaches and and for low pressure, uh, which of course drives these things. And what are people doing to prepare for this? Well, there's been lineups at uh, at propane uh, outlets here. People trying to uh, uh, to get ahead of of what are probably going to be weather widespread power outages. Uh, we had a storm, similar storm, quite quite as strong about three years ago, Hurricane Dorian, and we were out of, without power in parts of the city here for about five hours, so or five days rather. So um, people are trying to uh, to get their emergency preparedness kits, 72 hours worth of water and food and and non-perishable things, medications, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was pretty busy out on the roads when I left uh, left the radio station earlier this morning uh, to try and get some of my stuff done. Uh, but it uh, it looks like it's starting to slow down now. The the city of uh, Halifax Regional Municipality, where we are here, uh, are going to take transit off the road uh, at about eight o'clock tonight local time. Uh, they're going to shut down. We have two cross harbor bridges here. For those that are familiar with the with the geography, they're going to close one of the bridges to all vehicles, and they're going to keep the other one open as long as they can. It gets pretty windy with the wind blowing in off the Atlantic. Uh, down the Halifax Harbor. So uh, people are, are just trying to get the last minute things done, fill up their cars. I uh, don't see a lot of people boarding up windows and those kind of things like we would see in, in, in situations further south. Um, we don't get quite that strong a wind here, but the, the power issue is always the biggest problem here. Um, up in Cape Breton, and uh, for those that are familiar with the geography of Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia is in two parts. Uh, there's uh, there's the mainland of Nova Scotia, which is connected to, to the eastern part of Canada. And then we have an island that lays just off of that part called Cape Breton Island. It's connected by a, a causeway and a single bridge. And the eye of the storm is expected to to pass right over that area. So there's some concern that uh, that bridge may become uh, impassable in the next day or so, which would trap a, a bunch of people up in uh, in Sydney and on the rest of Cape Breton Island. So people are trying to do the best they can to get ready for this and hunker down and, and uh, as we say here, batten down the hatches. You hunkering down at the at the house or at the radio station? Uh, on my way to the radio station now. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a tried and true thing here. In fact, my team, uh, we all kind of joke about it that we spend sometimes in, in during uh, nor'easters in the winter and, and hurricane season, we spend more time in our camping gear at the radio station than we do in the woods. So um, we're, we're, uh, we're going to get ready. We're going to do a big show tomorrow on our station beginning at six in the morning. We're going to go through until we don't need to do it anymore. So um, it, uh, it's, it's certainly going to be a, a historic event here in the next 24 to 48 hours. Are they blaming this on climate change? You know, I haven't heard a lot of that. Uh, I know that there's always, there's always talk of that. And, and, you know, there's, there are some that are suggesting that these storms are getting more powerful as we go along. 20 years ago, we had Hurricane Juan, which was a powerful storm, which was a Category 2 when it, it came to shore. And, and then, as I mentioned, Dorian three years ago, which was a week two. Um, but you know, not a lot of that talk yet, but I, I would suspect that that, that probably, when we do the uh, the postmortem on this, this storm, will probably be something that people are talking about. 
uh, one of the bigger issues, of course, uh, with with these kind of storms, with the size that they are, is is the storm surge, and and you know, with rising sea levels, that becomes an issue. And is it going to be an issue moving forward? I think is something that probably will be a matter of discussion in the days and weeks ahead. Dan Allstrand, News Director, City News 95.7 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Dan, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. When you were going to LAX or to Burbank recently, did you take your mask with you? Because you were supposed to. A lot of people didn't. But now you don't have to. LA County is no longer requiring masks at the airports or on public transit. Why? Well, it's because of a declining case rate. But is that metric really accurate? And should we be using it at all? Dr. Robert Kim Farley is a professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So in the early stages, as you know, of the pandemic, when people were getting tested in in clinics or remember they were doing it at uh, Dodger Stadium, uh, the metrics were pretty good. We knew how many people were testing positive and you could make a a sort of a long term prediction on on what the positivity rate was on, on whether or not. Uh, More people or fewer people were getting infected. But so many people do it at home now, and it doesn't get reported. How can they use a a case measurement as a way to determine whether we should or shouldn't be wearing masks in public? Well, first, uh, Mike and Charles, it's good to be back with you today. And uh, I think that the best way of answering that is to recognize that uh, CDC also realizes that numbers of cases are becoming less of an accurate indicator and really are relying more and more on hospitalizations for COVID and also on deaths from COVID. And hospitalizations is a pretty accurate measure. So that new level of looking at low, medium, or high community levels is based more on hospitalizations at this stage. Okay. And we are basing ours that way too, since we're taking the the nod from the CDC. Should it be, should it be a mix or should it just, you know, should you only concentrate on hospitalizations? Because when we're told to get our boosters, that's what people concentrate on. I mean, they say, Hey, maybe you get a a little bit of time where you're not going to get this thing, but what it's really going to do for you is keep you out of the hospital. Yes, that's right. I think you've, uh, you know, correctly noted that the number of cases is a less accurate measurement at this stage. So I think it is appropriate to concentrate on the metric of hospitalizations. And you also rightly are pointing out, you know, now is the time to be getting your new vo- updated COVID booster that includes the Omicron variant. So I would really encourage uh, your listenership to get vaccinated if they haven't been and to be boosted, especially with the new booster updated. That should help uh, not only terms of transmission, but also especially in terms of severe illness that could even lead to death. It, it always seemed to me, a Doctor, that we, we kind of have always been doing this, the masking thing, perhaps the wrong way or thinking of it in the wrong way. And that is that they're always saying, well, you know, uh, once the case cases go up and once the hospitalizations go up, once we're in effect getting to be in a critical position, then we're going to put back a mask mandate. And but isn't that kind of like waiting for the forest to be totally on fire before you decide to send the, the plane with retardant to spray on it? Shouldn't you do that when it's a spark? Well, it's a good point. But I think you have to realize, again, we often talk about, you know, follow the science. We talk about science of uh, biological science of transmission. But there is also the behavioral science and uh, political science. So I think that we have to realize that as case rates and hospitalizations decline, people are not going to wear masks 100% of the time, all the time. We have to realize that, you know, when we get to lower levels, 
people who uh, are not as vulnerable as, say, the elderly or uh, those with multiple medical conditions, you know, it's time that you can go ahead and take uh, less masking precautions. But I think we should always realize that everyone has to make a personal decision on this, and no one should ever be stigmatized for wearing a mask because we never know what their situation may be. They themselves may be particularly susceptible because they've got multiple medical conditions, or they may be living in a home where other people are uh, particularly susceptible. They don't want to bring this back into the home. So we should respect people's decision on what to wear masks. But in terms of general recommendations, we should, again, follow the fact that once you get lower levels, uh, we can reduce some of these restrictions. Give me a measure of, of how worried or, or not worried you are for for winter. Yes, well, actually, I'm a little bit uh, cautiously optimistic that, you know, we are uh, have the new boosters coming out that should give much more protection. Uh, There's a lot of people already been infected that will give some degree of protection as well. And at the moment, we don't see any new variant arising that is uh, going to displace the BA5 that seems to be one of the most contagious that we have seen. So barring Another variant that arises that somehow does come in and surprise us, I think that we may see some modest increases just because people will be coming more indoors as the weather cools down. But um, I'm not anticipating that we will see these major surges or tsunamis, as I sometimes have called them, that we've seen in the past. Why do you think that there has been an apparent slowdown in the sort of evolution of variants? Because it, it for a while it seemed like almost every other week. It was a new variant, and now we we are kind of in just this period where they're all variations of the Omicron one, but they're still in that one particular family. You ask a very good question. I think uh, from my thinking about this, one of the reasons I think it's happening is because, you know, this most recent Omicron variant, the BA5, had a transmissibility that was approaching that of measles, which is one of our highest transmissible diseases by airborne spread. So I think what's happening is that we've actually got now a variant that's circulating that has such high transmissibility, it's hard for another variant to come in and displace it. Now, it's possible that if we had a variant arise that was... uh, uh, able to break through, you know, infections easily for our those people who had previous infection or those people who were vaccinated. Something like that could perhaps come over and, and give us another uh, uh, challenge. But I think we may actually be seeing uh, about the maximum transmissibility as we can get. And so, therefore, other variants along the similar line may not actually have much chance to arise. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, Professor of Epidemiology, Community Health Sciences, UCLA. Voting has started in Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine, where people are deciding on whether to become part of Russia. Well, the West and Ukraine both slamming this referendum, calling it a sham. With us again is Sofia in Kiev now, originally from southern Ukraine, near the Sea of Azov in an area under Russian occupation. She and her family escaped as the Russians were looking for her dad, who uh, serves in the military. Sofia, thanks for being back with us. So, yeah, no one believes this is what the people actually want. Um, But what do you hear about what's happening in in some of these places? Uh, Well, actually, um, I guess uh, right now uh, we we see that uh, this fake referendum for joining Russia is taking place uh, in occupied territories, particularly in Verdansk, where I'm from. But the Russians know that almost no one there supports them so they basically they use force. Local groups write that Russians walk around the houses uh, of our residents with armed military or Russian police and force people to sign a form about joining. So that 
you understand there are not even like a polling stations there because no one would come there and they know it. And uh, they also come to places where people work. And since, since most of the residents left the city, just like I did, Russians uh, and uh, Russians came instead, uh, and not just the military. Uh, I mean, Russians, people from Russia, they just moved to people's apartments. For instance, uh, we know that in my brother's apartment, there are several uh, Russian people living right now. So they don't even, at this at this um, referendum, so-called, they do not even ask for people passports. They just write the name and put a signature, and that's it. So it's just, um, I don't know how to call it, but fake, absolutely fake. So, Sophia, um, you are obviously in touch with people who are still in those areas where the voting is taking mm-hmm. place. How worried, how scared are they about this? Or are they taking it as kind of, you know, well, this is just a reality and we have to kind of go along with it. Uh, I have to say they're pretty scared uh, because they know that if they won't sign this, uh, they will be just shot or or they will be captured and tortured. Uh, but actually, Russians are very afraid right now of local partisans who constantly blow up the cars with Russian protégés in occupied territories and uh, the proof that our partisans there are successfully operating in this uh, occupied territory is also the fact that local uh, collaborators, uh, they do not hold these elections right now. For instance, well, I mean, they are afraid that uh, our local patriots will recognize them and hand them over to Ukrainian intelligence or to our partisans or to the security service. Therefore, Instead of our local co- collaborators, together with the military, there are people who came from previously occupied Donbass territories uh, who have been cooperating with Russians for eight years now. They came to people's houses and they held this election. So um, mostly people, of course, they are scared. They, are, uh, they even wrote uh, a message uh, to our uh, to our local newspapers and etc. and uh, asking. Uh, for them to not be recognized as traitors because they are forced to do this. And, of course, we understand that they are held hostage uh, by Russia. So, yeah, they're pretty afraid. But um, And, and we, we recognize them as, uh, you know, as people occupied, as people held hostage by Russia. So we do not think of them as traitors. We know they are waiting for our armed forces. We've talked before about what a hard decision it is to leave, and obviously you've now made it to keep and you've been there some time. Do you think some of these people are saying, okay, this is my last chance to get out before this vote? Or is it, you know what, wait it out for the troops to come someday or try and hide when the Russians get to your door? I mean, you can't imagine being in that in that position. It's horrible. Uh, yeah, you know, most of them, uh, I guess most of people there, they were not prepared for this to come this quickly, they, uh, you know, for this uh, election or referendum, whatever you call it, to happen this quickly. And uh, they they thought that uh, they're still waiting for armed forces, of course, but um, I guess it's just, it's way harder to escape right now than it was when I, uh, when I, you know, when I escaped. So, yeah, so they, they just, um, I guess they're just 
they just don't know what to do right now. Uh, and they, they're just hoping that we'll, uh, we'll liberate them as fast as we can. And that's, uh, that's what we are working on right now here in Kiev and in all Ukraine. Now, of course, as you know, there is this concern that if Russia declares these regions a part of Russia, uh, that and in fact, Putin has, has pretty much said that, they would then consider, the Russians would consider, any uh, counterattacks against them as basically uh, an attack on Russian soil, which could mean yeah. this could get but, much further out of hand, right? Uh, yeah, but you know, um, actually... Uh, it's it's quite a tricky thing because we saw for four or five five months now, uh, uh, you know, these explosions in other Russian regions, uh, in Belgorod, in Kursk, and uh, for instance, in Crimea, in occupied Ukraine and Crimea, there were a lot of explosions for uh, this summer, uh, and uh, we do not see any actions from Russia. That's why we know they're bluffing as always uh, they do and just as uh, because uh, because you know when uh, when they when Russia says something you just have to turn it upside down and this will be exactly what it plans to do so uh, it's just you know a couple of weeks ago Peskov Putin's spokesman said that there would definitely be no mobilization and uh, that is uh, that that was the moment that I realized that the mobilization would be very soon, and that's exactly what happened. So, it's no tricks, just outright lie. And we we know that uh, it changes it changes nothing. Whatever they call those territories, we do not care. That that is Ukrainian territories, and we're gonna to, and we're going to liberate them uh, as soon as we can. Sophia, there in Kiev, used to be from southern Ukraine, is from southern Ukraine. But now there, Sophia, our best to you, um, your brother, your dad. Thanks so much for, for coming back on. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Fetuses eat through the umbilical cord, but that doesn't mean they don't have an opinion on the food they're eating or getting. <laughs> Researchers out of the U.K. find that fetuses apparently like and dislike certain food. Yeah, they like carrots. They don't like kale. Which you know, I agree you with. You agree with them. I, I yeah. totally agree. I don't like, like we kale we said, either. started early and continued on. Absolutely. Uh, they studied ultrasound scans of 100 pregnant women, discovered that babies exposed to carrot flavors, they showed a laughter face. They were happy. Those exposed to kale flavors, cry face, decidedly unhappy. Professor Nadia Reisland, co-author of the study, head of the Fetal and Neonatal Research Lab at Durham University in England. Professor, thanks um, for being with us. So is this surprising to you? Because I think it's surprising to a lot of people. Like we said, um, we're going, okay, they get the nutrition through the umbilical cord. So how are they tasting any of this? They actually uh, like drink the amniotic fluid which surrounds them. And they can get, therefore, the taste through the mouth because the taste buds uh, are mature at four, 14 weeks gestational age and also the nose so they can smell uh, because the uh, sensory neurons are uh, viable and, and work uh, like uh, normally at 24 weeks gestation. So we started doing our study at 32 weeks gestation with 4D ultrasound scans and uh, looked at whether the fetuses would react differently to kale or carrot. Kale 
being very bitter and carrot being non-bitter. Now you mentioned that they laughed, that's true, they made the smile face gestalt. We cannot say that they were happy. We can't really relate that to emotions. And then with regard to kale, they actually grimaced, okay? So again, we can't say that they didn't like it. But if you think yourself, if you eat a flavor which is very, very strong and you have never had it before, you should look at your own facial expression. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure. It's going to match I could, up. I could, I, could <laughs> great. I could save you a lot of research when it comes to kale. They don't like it. He's going to grimace. You grimace no, when no, you yeah, eat I, it. I, I grimace when I look at kale. <laughs> that's absolutely not true. Perhaps your mom didn't eat any green vegetables. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the idea that, in fact, they get used to the food environment, which, which they have learned through the mother's diet, basically, you know. So uh, when you get them enough uh, healthy nutrition, the hope is actually that afterwards they will like the greens and they might like kale as well. So it's like building up a tolerance for it. It's that kind of bitter uh, it's, it's, taste. It's, it's like if, the, if you if you get a whole bunch of kale or spinach or broccoli or asparagus in the diet, then maybe the kids going to end up liking that when when they grow. Yeah, exactly. They get they get used to this food environment. It's like socialization into the food environment. So they get already used to what they will get afterwards when they're born. You see. So and the amniotic fluid itself. When you are uh, in a fish-based diet, for example, the amniotic fluid will uh, smell of fish. And if you are in a, uh, like, for example, curry-based diet environment, then uh, it will smell like curry. So they are already based through the amniotic fluid in this kind of food environment. So they get the smells and the taste of what the mother eats. And then afterwards, of course, when they are born, they will be used to that one. And when they are weaned, you will actually see that they might like the food which the parents eat. Now, does that change? Because people's tastes, uh, I think, evolve uh, as they get older, right? Yeah. I mean, there are things I didn't like as a kid that I like mm -hmm. now, with the exception of kale, which has been very st <laughs> steadfast. Uh, yeah, but, but if you if you, if you had tried, I mean, like, if you just look at your face when you try a first food, you know, um, for the first time, especially when it's a very strong food. Just see how you like it then. Because what we have done is we did another study uh, with uh, French College actually, where we looked at weaning, okay, the first spoons of food, which, uh, or puree, which these babies ate, okay. And they had like a vegetable puree or, uh, or um, fruit puree. And we found that the babies sometimes grimaced at the first taste of the vegetable puree, but once they had like taken the first spoon, then they were really, really eager in getting the second and third one. <laughs> they were gobbling it up. So I think what you said is completely right. You learn about different tastes and you learn to like different tastes as you grow older. After a while, you say, hey, it's not that bad. Professor uh, Nadia Reisland, co-author of that study, the head of the Fetal and Neonatal Research Lab at Durham University in England. Uh, stay, 10 o'clock over there. Thanks, thanks for uh, staying up for us. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a store uh, opening near me that, that is going to be like a kind of kale-themed store, seriously. And I, I grimace just walking past it. I don't have to eat the kale. You know, I just like, pass it. California kale lobby is going to send you a basket after this and be like, it's not that. Try it. <laughs> I was going to say, this program brought to you by the <laughs> yes, kale. Yes, it's the next commercial in place. <laughs> 
The cost of staying at a nursing home or assisted living facility for seniors is rapidly going up. The rates have jumped more than 10 percent in some cases. The usual increase is about three to five. Facilities dealing with higher costs of food, utilities, insurance, wages, trying to prevent COVID. So how are seniors and their families managing? Patricia McGinnis, Executive Director of California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. Thanks for being with us. So uh, obviously inflation playing a role here. And when it comes to managing, I mean, this is getting more and more difficult because it's getting more and more expensive. Very much so. And in fact, um, <clears throat> we've had a couple of calls just over the last couple of days where um, they're weekly their monthly uh, or day fees are a thousand dollars a day just for nursing home care and those are the private pay most nursing homes are reimbursed by the medicaid program or medicare and um and the average cost even nationally is about ninety four thousand dollars a year if you're going to pay privately but the majority of the funds come from the federal government who gave them millions if not billions of dollars during covid and they just got a, almost a billion dollar increase in their Medicare reimbursements. So nursing homes are not suffering. Uh, it's the consumers who are suffering. I was going to say, unless somebody is extremely wealthy, is it that everyone is destined when they get older to go into state or federal subsidized nursing homes? Not necessarily. I mean, one of the things that we've been pushing for, along with other advocacy groups, are home and community based alternatives. So, the, I mean, the cost of home care is extraordinarily expensive as well. If you decide, if you have enough money, you can stay home. You don't have to go into a nursing home. If you do go into a nursing home, the chances of you being on uh, the Medicaid program are very, very high. And in fact, about 65% of the residents in California's nursing homes have all or part of their cost of their care paid for by the Medicaid program. But there are other alternatives like assisted living residential care. We've got 7,400 of those facilities in California, ranging from small six-bed facilities to large 200-bed uh, facilities. But even those are extraordinarily expensive. The average cost of a residential care facility in California is five to $6,000 a month, and they can go up to even more, to $10,000 a month. So very few people can afford to pay for those kinds of things. So we get a call from somebody whose mother's in a assisted living, and they'll say, well, she's running out of money. She's been using her savings for the last couple of years. What happens now? And, you know, the only alternative that we have in California is for that person to go into a nursing home under the Medicaid program. So we've got to change things. There's no question about it. How much more pre-planning does this take? You know, because everyone, I'm going to plan for retirement and, and I'm going to have this amount a month. And then you start to think, well, way past retirement, I'm going to have to worry about all these things. And then it's, where do I want to go? Who can I move with? Do I want someone to watch me some other time? Or am I going to need to be helped all of the time? Well, it's it's hard to say. Nobody. I mean, that's the problem is it's very hard to plan for that because you don't know. One of the things that's been pushed for years in this country is long-term care insurance. Well, long-term care insurance pays very little for nursing home care. Um, generally, they pay about $150 a day. But when the cost of care can be $1,000 a day, that's not going to help you much. You're still going to end up on the Medicaid program, even though you've spent thousands of dollars on a long-term care policy. We advise people that if you can still get a long-term care insurance policy, depending on your age, and a lot of the uh, companies have dropped out of the market, um, <clears throat> is to get some home care coverage. 
because if people, if you ask anybody, what would you rather do, go into a nursing home or stay at home? <laughs> stay at home. Stay yeah. at home, of course. So that's one of the things that we do. But there's one of the biggest issues that we have, both for nursing home, for residential care, and for continuing care retirement communities where you could pay a million or $1.5 million just to buy a unit there, and then you pay thousands of dollars every month just for your care. We have no caps on how much they can increase the rates. In some cases, they can only increase them once a year. But in other cases, if for a residential care or assisted living, all you have to do is give 60 days notice and you can increase them 100 percent. It doesn't we have no caps whatsoever. Are, are, of all the so-called civilized countries, are we the only one that has this particular problem? As far as I know, we are one of the few that has this, particularly in developed countries. That we have no long-term care insurance system in this country, period. We rely on the Medicaid programs. We rely on Medicare. People think Medicare is going to pay for long-term care. Well, you know what? It does not. It can pay very, very well for um, medical care, for hospital care, but only for a limited period of time. If you end up going into a nursing home, you can maybe get up to 100 days under the Medicare program, but for the average person, it's about 23 days under Medicare, and then it's out of pocket, or it's gonna, you're going to end up on the Medicaid program. So we, we really do need to uh, change the way that we, we um, fund long-term care. And in terms of the nursing homes, they're making a lot of money, <clears throat> a lot of taxpayers' money. They're getting, they got billions of dollars in COVID relief money. And they did not pass it through. And now they're complaining, gee, we don't have enough staff. Well, when you're only getting paid 12 bucks an hour or $14 an hour for one of the most difficult jobs you could possibly do, then you're going to have a hard time finding staff. Patricia McGinnis, Executive Director, California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. That's In Depth for the Week. We'll see you Monday.